next week. If you are a parent of children that are involved in the Sunday school and the kids' church upstairs, so next week, can you please meet at the front with the, uh, if you're a, a parent, if you're a, a children's ministry volunteer and helper or anything like that, could you please meet at the front next Sunday uh, after church because there's going to be a brief meeting regarding the children's ministry as well, which would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Thank you. Now, over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at, it, it has happened unintentionally, actually. We've been looking at, I guess, what you could call a living-in series. And we've looked over the past couple of weeks two specific things regarding our, the way we live and for who we live. So we've, we looked at looking at living in the last days. And last week we looked at living in divine purpose. And essentially what we drew from those things specifically was to be able to recognize what's going on around us in the world. And as we live in the last days, to reprioritize our lives. So if you recall the three R's that were mentioned taken from Ephesians chapter 2 was to remember, to repent, and to reprioritize our lives in regards to living in the last days, so that we might be lovers of God rather than lovers of pleasure. And to help us or to guard against that, then we looked at living in then with divine purpose. And in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, we, we looked at we are no longer to live for ourselves, but for Him who died for us and was raised again. And so for the last sort of week regarding living in, I thought it would be appropriate then to encourage you because these were somewhat, and and that's not my intent, and we are told to faithfully present the whole counsel of God from the Scriptures. And and they seem somewhat like you're being told off or criticizing, which is a harsh word, the things that we are or are not doing regarding our relationship with Jesus. But I want to encourage you today regarding, okay, well, if this is where things are, if the specific purpose of, of living for God, of living within these last days, equipped by Him, it, it made sense to look at this final living in as being prepared. Being prepared, or more accurately, to be equipped. We are always, from when we're young to when we're a lot older, we are always being prepared for something that is about to occur, whether it's being prepared to learning to read, whether it's going to school to get an education, whether it's to pick up various schools for the job that you have. Um, Nathaniel has just started a new job recently where he's working as an emergency dispatcher. So he is, when you call for an ambulance, he's the one that directs you to where you need to go. And, and so he's being equipped to handle the various situations. And Nathaniel has a very unique personality in the sense where he is, he's, a, he's a stickler for rules. You set out A, B, C, D, he will never depart from A, B, C, D. He'll, he'll stick to it. And he's also somewhat emotionally detached. So he never gets drawn into something emotionally. And so he's, he's ideal for the job. I went to pick him up at 1.30 in the morning and he goes, I'm sorry, I'm late, Dad. I, I was talking with a, a woman who was having a heart attack. And I was like, oh, well, okay, how'd it go? I said, oh, she's okay, she's okay. But she was Serbian and she couldn't speak very much English. All she could say to me is, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, I'm hurting. I said, how'd you go? And he goes, yeah, it's all right. 
So there was no, no, it's really interesting how God has designed him for this particular position. And so I thought then, okay, if we're willing, if we've to be prepared for the situations that we are in, in these last days, and to fulfill the purpose that we've been given, I thought it appropriate then to title this as living in preparedness, living in preparedness. So I'm going to open in prayer, and we're going to look at the scriptures together And prayerfully, this will be encouraging as well as equipping for you and I as the children of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has brought us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We thank you for the salvation that he has given us by his sacrifice and by his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of you on high. We thank you for what you have done within each of our hearts, and I pray that you will stir our hearts so much that we will not be content in just existing, uh, that we will not be content to just going through the motions, uh, but rather, Lord, to fall more and more in love with you, to be captivated, captivated by the sheer greatness and majesty of who you are, and the uh, the eternal love that you bestow upon us with every moment of every day. So I ask, Father, that you will, you will speak to us now, that we will not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word, that we truly will be transformed from the inside out and make a change within each of our lives. Please heed our cry in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The biblical authors were brilliant at communicating realities of life by painting pictures. Jesus did it in the parables. Uh, Paul did it in various ways. But there was the illustrating of spiritual realities via physical experiences. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, Paul speaks about running to obtain a prize. So he uses this whole idea, Hebrews chapter 12, he, uh, the author of Hebrews does a very similar thing. And, and he says, even though many compete, there is only one winner. That's in verses 24 and 25. And then he goes on and says, if athletes would sacrifice, train, and prepare themselves for something as fleeting as a medal or a crown, or, or a reward, or even a title, because it was considered as valuable, he then says, how much more then are we to prepare, train, and sacrifice to attain a prize, or a crown, that is incorruptible and eternal? And you read this in 1 Corinthians chapter, 12, chapter 9, verses 25b and 26. He says, they do it, so the athletes do it, to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. And you've seen, you see when children do this, when little children run around aimlessly, we have uh, Nola and Latina who come to our house and Vito, and they just run. They're not doing anything. They just run, and they just run around and around and around the table. And you're just watching them, and they're screaming, and they're laughing, and you're thinking, well, and they do it for a long, long, long time. That's running aimlessly. We are not to be like that. 
We're not to be running aimlessly. Or when you see Vito do this, when like he watches Power Rangers at home. And so when he's running around at the house, he's, he's like, ha, ha, ha. And just, we're not to be like that. As Christians, we are not to be like Vito, who runs around pointlessly punching or running around in circles. That is not to be our purpose. Okay? So instead, we are to be prepared. So to bring it in today's context, the charge is given here that as a child of God, I am not to live a pointless life of going through motions, of going through the act of being a Christian. For example, even if it's just attending a church on a Sunday, but never doing anything on, from Monday to Saturday, or worse. I might go to my monthly prayer meeting, I might go to my weekly Bible study, but any spiritual input, any spiritual impact that is made in my life or in the lives of others doesn't occur. And, and I always remember, I, I believe it was Pastor Roger who shared this, he said how Sunday is an overflow of the life that you've lived close with Jesus from Monday to Saturday, that you have been in the Word, you have been praising and worshiping, you've been stepping out by faith, that when you get to Sunday, Sunday is a celebration of God's goodness and grace that He's demonstrated to you from the other six days of the week. Pastor Rick Warren actually says that as well, I believe. So... Uh, we want to avoid, as we looked at in 2 Timothy chapter 3, these two things. Chapter 3, verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying God's power. And 2, verse 7, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's, that's scary. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So how do we prepare against such condemnations? How do we follow on from this of remembering, repenting, and reprioritizing? Well, that's by being prepared. It's about being prepared. It has been referenced to and drawn from in the Gospels numerous times, but the primary means by which the Lord Jesus combated and defeated Satan was with the Word of God, a means available and accessible to us here and now, Bob Bagley was a gentleman that I, learned, I met at New Tribes Mission Bible College. He was a missionary in Papua New Guinea for a number of years, and I had the privilege of picking up his Bible. His Bible was in what was called the, the, the mission barrel. The mission barrel is when people didn't have clothes or food or, or books or anything they wanted anymore, so they just put it in this big room. People could go in, grab stuff for free. I went in there, and I found the Bible, wide-margin Bible, very old, and it ended up being Bob's. I went to go give it back to him and says, no, no, it's okay, I've, I've got plenty. But there was this note in Matthew chapter 4 regarding the temptation of Christ. And the note was, supernatural miracles are unneeded when ordinary means are to be had. What he meant by that was this, that the way Jesus Christ defeated Satan was, was not with the miraculous. He did not defeat Satan as God, he defeated Satan as man, using the tools available to man, which was God's Word. To show us how we too combat, how to show us how we too can be prepared for the spiritual battle. This is a concise way, a concise way to explain this 
in the regards that we have the same tools available to us as Jesus Christ had to himself, which was God's very word. Why? And this is the passage we want to look at today, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, because all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We know this passage. We have heard it over and over again. For a lot of us, we have memorized this particular passage. So we're going to look through three things that stuck out to me as I read this. And prayerfully, these three things will be an encouragement to you regarding what we have in our hands right now on our phones, sitting on our desks at home. The first is this, the all-sufficient nature of God's Word. It says all Scripture is is God-breathed. All Scripture. You will note this first word, all. It doesn't say some. It doesn't say most. But every word that has been communicated to us by God's chosen vessels, as it looks at in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, is inspired, has its source, is grounded in and rooted in God himself. The scriptures are God-breathed, which means that the words themselves are more than just imparters of information. The words themselves are more than that. They are not just information that leads to a contented life, although there are those words found within it. It's not a word to give you comfort in difficult times, even though there are many such words for difficult times. The fact that the, uh, that the Scriptures are described as being God-breathed is because they are more than books of self-improvement. They are more than books or platitudes of formulas for success. The fact that they are God-breathed is that they are revelations of His very being. They are not words to increase your information. They reveal and introduce to us a person, a person to be known, a person to by which he continually reveals himself to us through these very pages. All Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is God-breathed. And you might look, but what about about all those genealogies, Joe? All those so-and-so begot so-and-so, who begot so-and-so and and begot so-and-so. You know what that shows me about? That shows me, one, that this isn't made up. That shows me, because you've got a historical record, it shows me that, that God is not afraid of questions. You look at Luke chapter 1. He, he distinctly writes out dates and places and rulers and people so people can double-check and say, is this legit? Which it is. The genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, you look at that and you see, wow, look at the grace of God at who God used to bring forth the Messiah. All Scripture is God-breathed. So it's, it's, it's introducing me. It's not, informing, it's not just informing me of Him, but rather introducing me to Him. 
That is what the Word of God is. Also, and I like the way John Piper refers to this, why in John's Gospel was Jesus called the Word? In the beginning was the Word. And John Piper says this. Oh, I don't know. There we go. John calls Jesus the Word because he had come to see the words of Jesus as the truth of God and the person of Jesus as the truth of God in such a unified way that Jesus himself, in his coming and working and teaching and dying and rising, was the final and decisive message of God. Or, to put it more simply, what God had to say to us was not only or mainly what Jesus said, but who Jesus was and what he did. His words clarified himself and his work, but his self and his work were the main truth God was revealing. I am the truth, Jesus said in John 14, 6. The God-breathed scripture points us to life because the God-breathed scriptures point to and reveal to us the person of Jesus who is the true vine, who is the bread of life, who is the door, the good shepherd, the light of the world, the resurrection of the life, uh, and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. That every time we have the opportunity to open the pages of Scripture, this reveals to us Jesus. I think, I think sometimes we forget that. I think sometimes we forget that we are meeting with Him when we open the pages of Scripture. And each of those pages are God-breathed. Therefore, living in preparedness begins with the wisdom of knowing what you have in your hands, what you have on your phone, what you have sitting on your desk, what's on your bookshelf. The God-breathed Scriptures that as milk quenches your thirst. The God-breathed Scriptures that as meat nourishes your soul. The God-breathed scriptures that as the sword of the Spirit is weaponized to attack and to cut down the enemies and the obstacles that you face. That the God-breathed scriptures as promises by which your faith can grow. This is the nature, the all-sufficient nature of God's Word, for it is all of God. And because it is all of God, Francis Schaeffer says this, when God states in the Bible what He is like, people have truth about God. Because people are finite, that is, they are limited, they do not have exhaustive knowledge about God. What they have is truth about God. And from, that's supposed to be from, and from what God gives in the Scriptures, they also have truth about morals and meaning and values. This, this is what we have within the all-sufficient nature of God's Word. Therefore, it stands to reason that if that's what God's Word is, that it is always presently relevant. The four words used here is, and is useful for. You'll notice like the, the all-sufficient nature of God's Word, that all Scripture is God-breathed. Not some, not most, but all of it. Here it is here as well. It says that it is useful, present tense. Not may be useful, not might be useful, but is useful. Now, how is it to have a book or a collection of books written over 1,600 years in another century 
in another culture and another language have relevance to me as a Polynesian man in Australia in the 21st century? How can, how can a book that can be considered a book of antiquity have such use for me now? Now, this is an argument. You may have heard this argument. This is an argument I heard from a guy at school, a guy who says the relevance of the Scriptures. It, it may even be a thought that you have had at times. But the important fact to remember is this. Truth, specifically objective truth, specifically God's divine truth, transcends time because truth is timeless. Truth transcends culture because truth is universal. Truth transcends circumstance, transcends geography, transcends race because truth is limitless, boundless, and it is liberating. Now, I am told, like I read and what John Purpose stated, that, that God is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you take that same sort of reasoning, well, if truth is, lim- is, is limitless, if truth is boundless, if, if truth is, is liberating, if Jesus is referred to in John's gospel as the word, that means this, that the person of Jesus Christ The truth of who he is transcends time, for he is timeless. He transcends culture, for he is universal. He transcends circumstance, geography, and race, for he is eternal, boundless, and liberating. Jesus Christ is the Word of God who transforms, who influences, and moves us by his Holy Spirit, making the pages of Scripture in our lives presently relevant, always relevant, regardless of the situation that we're in. For example, oh, I missed it, okay. For example, in Hebrews 11, 13, 8, we, uh, sorry, in Hebrews 13, we read, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same yesterday. In the beginning was the Word, we read in John chapter 1, verse 1. He's the same yesterday. He's the same today. All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, and forever. And this is what this is for. In Revelation 19, 13, he said, he says, I saw, heaven standing, so I saw heaven standing open, and there were before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. This is our God who is always presently relevant. Therefore, when he speaks as the word of God in our circumstances, he speaks into us in these ways. This is how the scriptures are useful. They're useful for our teaching. For our teaching. I won't spend too much time there. It is done so because we honestly don't know what is best for ourselves. If my heart leans to deceit, then I'll think I'm doing something right or I'm doing better than I actually am. 
I need to head to someone who wants what's best for me, who loves me and teaches me about life's reality. This is why Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 is so important. When we looked at that at the end of last year, Proverbs 2, 1 to 5 talks about it. If you seek after me as for hid treasures, etc., if you look for me and search for me as for gold, and you go, if you have the same attitude of, of pouring through the scriptures, and, and what happens? You end up understanding the fear of the Lord and finding the knowledge of God. Teaching. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 talks about how we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching us that we should sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs within our heart. That's what teaching is so important. But the teaching has to come from the pages of Scripture. The teaching has to come from Him, not, not what I think is right, not what I think is important. Because he wants what's best for me. And how, how, what better person to go to about life than the one who created life? So that's the first act. It's useful for teaching. In the here and now, the scriptures are useful for my teaching. Teaches me about God. Teaches me about relationships. Teaches me about sin. Teaches me about my d- destination. Teaches me about my attitudes I have towards others. The, the scriptures are useful for that in the here and now. It's useful for rebuking. The difference, oh, sorry, Proverbs teaches that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. That's Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. Ephesians 4, verse 15 speaks and says how we should speak the truth in love. Rebuke is the harsh word given when the party involved knows that what they are doing is wrong. And that when you go before them and you need, that that what they're doing is in direct contradiction to God's word and rebuke is necessary to keep the bride of Christ pure. It's there for the protection and for the benefit, not only of the church, but of the relationships that are within it. But once again, it is the God-breathed scriptures that is the basis for such acts. Not what I think. It has to be in accordance with what God's heart is. That's what it's useful for. It's useful for rebuke. I, I still remember this quite distinctly. As a very young Christian, there was an infidelity within the church between one of the Bible study leaders and how he cheated on his wife. And we had a big church meeting, and the, the, they, they read the Scriptures and, and talked about why he had to be put out of the church because he wasn't willing to repent from the sin that he had done. And one young man got up and says, look, well, that's not what Jesus would do. Jesus wouldn't kick someone out if they did something wrong like that. Why on earth would they do this? And the elders got up and lovingly said, no, Jesus would say that because that's what the Word of God says. That's what the Word of God says. And we're told to put them out and so that they ought to repent and come back and reconcile with God and reconcile with his wife. And I saw that. that I saw rebuke and that was scary. And I know it was hard for, for the, the elders who did it, but it's, yeah, that, that's, once again, they, it was for the benefit of and the protection of the church. But that's what it's useful for. It's also useful for correcting, and the difference between correcting and rebuking is rebuke is necessary when they're rebuked for an indirect disobedience to what God desires. When you know what you're doing is wrong, correcting is that of discipline. It is that of nurture for the growth and the maturity of the person involved. 
I, I know this from my own life. I know I need to be corrected. I know I need to be disciplined. I don't like it, but as I'm told in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11, you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship is discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought as what they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Which is quite appropriate at the end because that last one it's relevant for is training in righteousness. Is useful, present tense. And the training is continual. Um, question. How many of you have made a, a New Year's resolution to lose weight? Anybody? Don't be shy. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, my, that, that's my one too. And what always happens with resolutions, is, as always, we start off strong and then we, we, we sort of die off as a thing. Can I, can I just, okay, this is me tooting my own horn. I weighed myself. I'm now down to 117 kilos. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. But anyway. But once again, once again, there's the training, the training involved to have something accomplished. So here's the thing. It's not to go hard for a week, slack off for the rest of the year. Training means being in the right mindset. Training means perseverance. Training means sacrifice. Training means holy sweat. Training means stepping out. Training means eating right. Training means being prepared and knowing and understanding who, why, and what you're preparing for. Training in godliness, we are told. Hebrews, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Train yourself to be godly. That word train is where we get the word gymnasium from. Okay, it's about exercise. It means practically in your life, reprioritizing things and where you can spiritually exercise. Now, some of these exercises can be done in your home. You spend time in prayer. You spend time in the Word. You spend time studying the Word. You, spend, you do a lot of these things. And, and I think a lot of us can do this quite easily. We do, we do our, our training at home. But there's also training that needs to be done out of the home. So I, I used to exercise at home. Now I go out of the home. But we can do training out of the home. You know what training out of the home looks like? Training out of the home looks like sitting next to somebody on the bus and striking up a conversation with them. Training outside the home may be, I'm going to step out by faith and build a friendship with somebody that I don't know so I can show the love of Jesus to them. Training outside the home might be, I see there's a homeless program going on. I want to be involved in that outside of the church. Training outside the home could be if I ask you to write a letter for the prisoners within the prison and say that you're praying for them. Training outside the home means getting outside of the comfort 
of your bedroom or of your house and going outside and getting some sweat on the brow to see what you're being trained for. And I think that's really important because a lot of us, a lot of us, we are, we are wonderful stay-at-home soldiers. Oh, I'm powerful at home. I'm strong at home. I remember an actor was talking about when there was a, a scuffle going on. He, came, he told the story and said, he said, oh, there was a scuffle going on. And a guy says, go and do something. And he goes, no, I'm not going to do anything. I'm an actor. You, you put me in a film with this guy and I'll beat him up. But this isn't the movie. This is real life. No, I'll, I'll, let the wa- I'll wait for the police. And that's exactly right. So we're sort of like that when it comes to our spiritual life. But there's no point, and, and this is why I always find it fascinating, even for my own life, we, we look and we study and we discover the promises of God and we never know if those promises are real because we don't actually train outside of the home. We don't actually put what we do into practice. And this is why uh, we're going to start in a couple of weeks a church-wide study a church-wide study, and it is actually a study about evangelism. It's a study to equip us, and I, I, which, is, which reminds me, I want to meet with, if you're a, a grace group leader or a cell group leader, I would like to meet with you very briefly afterwards to explain what this is, but it's, a, it's, a wonder, it, it's actually equipping you to be able to go there and strike a conversation up with people and dialogue with them about the person of Jesus Christ. And we want to be doing this as a church. But once again, it's going to be absolutely useless if all you do is study it, it's going to be no good to you. You've got to actually use it to see its effectiveness. And you learn along the way. It's a, I've, I've, I know young Andrew Finn, would, I gave him a book about this. Uh, Martin Fong has this book as well. Uh, but you actually you get given these tools and you take these tools and use them. And it's amazing to see how God uses these tools to be able to effectively communicate the gospel to someone who doesn't know Jesus. And that's what I'd like us to do as a study, as a, as a church, to study this as a church, okay? So, train ourselves to be godly, Hebrews 5.14, so then we'll be trained to distinguish good from evil. In a society today that sort of blurs the line between good and evil, we are given, thankfully, the light of God's Word to be able to discern accurately as to what is right and to what is wrong. But once again, it is only effective if we follow through on it. But then this leads to the last one, okay? To be effectively equipped by God's Word. See, the God-breathed Scriptures that teaches us, rebukes us, corrects us, and trains us is not so we can be knowledgeable, nor is it so that we can be pleased with ourselves. It's not even limited to what it says here. It is so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for good works. Ephesians 2.10 talks about that. I mean, if you look back at the Corinthian passage about, about you know, instead of running aimlessly and, and striking the air, you read about striving to win the race again and to be a master, to have mastery in order to obtain the crown. But the issue that seems to plague us as Christians today is that we are inefficient and we are ineffective in wielding the weapons of our warfare. We are not ready to face and we are ill-equipped to have any effect in the battle for righteousness in our own lives and for the blessings of other people's lives, of our loved ones as well. Uh, Victory and and unity and and community in the lives of the church suffer because of this. This is the whole idea of the gifts of the Spirit bestowed upon us to fulfill the work of the Lord. And 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through to chapter 13, verse 13. In Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8, an attitude. So we've got an action and an attitude. And it starts in the most basic of places, places that you know, places you try to carry out, places that you wrestle with continually. Now, I'm going to show you a picture that I've never shown anybody else. This picture was taken 35 years ago. This is myself and my cousin, Albert. Um, yeah, Albert's the white guy. Okay, so, so, so we, are, we, we both played first 15 rugby in our high school. That's, that's me at, I think, 14 years old. We are playing first 15 rugby in high school. Okay, I know. Look, I like the hairstyle. That's pretty cool. It's, yeah. Okay. Curious. Yeah. Pay attention, please. I'm going to take the photo off. Pay attention, okay? Okay. <laughs> okay, so this is me and my cousin Albert, and we are equipped, ready to get into the game. We have our boots on, we have our, protect- our protective gear, which is a mouth guard, that's it. It's, we have our uniforms, which represent our unity and achieve, of achieving the same goal, symbolizing our united purpose. We know what we're about to get into, which is conflict, because that's what the game is. And we have been training week after week, day after day, for that specific conflict. We know the game moves. We know our role. I was a number seven, so I was a breakaway, a flanker on the open side. My cousin Albert was an inside center. He was a number 12. We know our roles within the game. We know the lines we are supposed to run within the game. We are given and equipped with the skills of how to tackle, of how to carry, of how to run, of how to form a ruck, of how to protect the ball. We are given all of those skills within our training. So when it came to the game, what could we do? We could have the most impact within the conflict that we are partaking in. Does that make sense? We are in a spiritual warfare, we are told, in Ephesians chapter 6. And we have been given weapons of our warfare. We have been given a helmet of salvation. We have been given a breastplate of righteousness. We've been given a belt of truth. We've been given the shoes of the gospel, the preparation of peace. We've been given a sword of the Spirit. We've been given a shield of faith. And yet, and yet, whilst we are equipped in this way, we are not ready to get into the conflict because we are ineffective in how we wield our sword and how we hold our shield and how we wear everything else. And, and so this is what I find really fascinating, really fascinating, is that even though we have all of this, for us to be, be effectively equipped means that we are to do what? We are to heed God's God-breathed Word that teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains us. We, we are to heed those words. I, it means that I am to not only heed such a word, but I am to act on that word, which means, and this is what I find really, really sort of difficult at times, when he convicts me over something I have to do something about, and I don't, that's what makes me ineffective. That when I, that when I have sin within my heart, and that I've compromised something that I know I shouldn't have compromised, that makes me ineffective. That, that I know that when there's a love that I need to give to somebody and I don't give that love out, that, that's when I become ineffective. That, that's, that's the difficulty there. That I have all the equipment, and you see this in movies when they're getting ready for their big battle and they're putting on all the stuff that they need to. Yeah, we're great at doing that, and then we don't go anywhere with it. But this is the, the, the encouragement is, is that, if, okay, if I heed such things, 
If I heed such things, what happens when I become effective? Uh, when, I, when I harbor that sin, in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, it says, it says uh, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, not, neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But then he goes, But your sin has separated between you and your God that he will not save and that he will not hear. And that's what happens with, when sin enters our heart. That's what happens when we become, become, become ineffective. But if we, if we get into God's scriptures, if we, if we heed the God-breathed word that he's given us, and, and, and then we learn to do something with those tools and, and the vessels and those things, then, then what we're going to do with it is that we've got to get in the game. We've got to get in the game. Because it, it, won't, it won't happen. It means that all this here, that, that all scripture that is given to us, the, the, the whole idea of being prepared for what we're about to face starts off with the simple thing of getting into his word. A word that reveals him. Not just a list of information. Not just some words to make you feel better at yourself. But it introduces himself to you through his word. These, these God-breathed scriptures that in these last days, having our purpose in life, uh, in life as living for him who died for us and rose again, that we are equipped effectively by the always present, always relevant God-breathed word that teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains us in righteousness, that we might do the good works God has prepared for us to walk in. And, and what, I, what I like about this is that it all starts, it all starts, and I know it sounds really weird, it all starts with prayer. Not just, you know, I was listening to a sermon last night, because my wife were here last night just doing some stuff upstairs, and, uh, and, and, and I was listening to a sermon, and he said, what's really fascinating is, is so often, so often when we, when we call out the name of Jesus, or we say at the end of our prayer, in Jesus' name, it, it's like a stamp. It's like a stamp. You said, done. That's it. No, he said, he said to, to call out the name of Jesus means you're calling upon he who died for you. You're calling on him who, who rose again. He who knows you by name. He that invites you into his presence. That the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and, and every knee shall bow that, that he is Lord. That you'll cry out to him as your father and as your friend as your Lord and as your master. And, and so it starts off, it starts off with you praying. If you read in Ephesians chapter 6 with the whole armor of God, it says, put on prayer. That's how the armor's put on. And so we pray, we pray for the desire to be equipped. We pray for the desire to be about God. We pray about God's heart. We pray openly and, and honestly and, and ask God to transform us from the inside out because doing the action just doesn't cut it. It just doesn't cut it. The only way we can be transformed inwardly is we ask God to transform us inwardly by the power of Jesus Christ. So I want to, before I close in prayer, I, what I want to do is I want you guys to pray for each other. To pray. To pray that our hearts will be stirred. To pray that our hearts will be ignited with a, with a hunger and a thirst for, for Him. To pray that we'll be stirred to, to be more about just going through motions, but to have a genuine, on-fire passion for the things of God. For, no, not for the things of God, for God Himself. A passion for Jesus Christ. So I would like to invite you to pray for someone else right now. 
and then I'll close in prayer after that. And after that, we'll, we'll come up, and if you want to be prayed for again, for the prayer team, we'll do that as well. So if I ask, just start praying. If you've got sin in your life, pray that God will help you with that. If you've got difficulties in your life, pray that God will help you. Just it's the time to be open and honest with someone and pray for them, please.